Well, what a privilege to be here again with many of you. And on this occasion, as uh, you send out a faithful servant of the Lord to another venue of the Lord's harvest. And uh, Steve and Tony, it's a great joy to be here with you both and to your family as well. I know you're, both of your parents are here. And of course, uh, all of your family has been a part of your ministry. No shepherd ever shepherds alone. And that's really true. Uh, as you have, for the last 12 years, had the wonderful ministry and the word that God has given to you through Pastor Steve, you've also had the incredible ministry of his family in your midst. So I just want to take time, Steve, to thank you and Tony and your family for the faithfulness that you've exhibited as a family your entire ministry. And uh, that's such a great uh, blessing uh, to watch. And uh, I'm thankful to have the opportunity to be here. We're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 today. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And uh, the title of the message is Gospel Praying. And I want to introduce it to you this way uh, with a story. That took place 62 years ago in 1960. Most of you or many of you were not alive back in 1960. How many of you uh, were born after 1960? Let's just just take a little poll. Okay, that's that's almost half of you. All right, so um, most of you, though, will be familiar with the story. The story takes place in 1960 where two guys met for coffee one day. And they decided to make a bet, a really simple bet. And at the end of that bet, one would become the owner of a massive publishing house and the other would become an international figure with a household name. So let me tell you the name of the two guys. Uh, One of the guys was a guy named Bennett Cerf. He's the guy that ended up with the uh, publishing house. He was the co-founder of a publishing company in 1927. Uh, that eventually ended up becoming Random House Publishers. And if you've done any work in education, Random House Publishing is a very big name in the higher ed world. And so this guy, Bennett Cerf, was at the table, and the other guy was a writer named Theodore Geisler. And the bet was really simple. They had, they had had these interchanges before, and so this was not round one for them. But But the bet was very simple. The bet was... It came from Surf to Geisler, and the bet was that he could not take and write a successful children's book using only 50 words. And the words and and the counted. So he had 50 vocabulary words that he could use, and he could use them in any way he wanted, but he couldn't exceed that amount. And the bet was for 50 bucks. If he succeeded, he would get a dollar a word. And if he failed, he would have to pay a dollar for whatever word he used above the 50. So this was kind of a weird bet, but they met again at the end because Geisler ended up writing a children's book and winning that bet. And that book actually went on to become an international, world-renowned bestseller. And uh, a few years ago, it was featured on a major news network, ABC News, because it had just passed its 200 million copy sold. It's in almost every country of the world. It's written in almost every language. And I have had a personal relationship with this book my entire life. 
And I, uh, I, I have, anywhere I go, I get asked about this book because the name of the book is Green Eggs and Ham. And Theodore Geisler is the beloved Dr. Seuss. And so this book, everywhere I go, because my name is Sam, everybody wants to know, have you ever eaten green eggs and ham? And the answer is yes, I actually have. Uh, and they're not very good. They're not actually that different from any kind of eggs and ham. You just have a little dye in them. But this was an amazing feature. And it catapulted uh, Geisler into, obviously, a household name, international fame. Uh, he had actually written uh, an earlier book that became even more famous over time, where he had been challenged again to write a children's book using the vocabulary words that were back in that year, uh, back in that time, in uh, the first grade reading primer. There were 348 words, and he actually used all 348 of those words, and he wrote a book called The Cat in the Hat. All right? But the 50 words that we're looking at this morning uh, that we're talking about in Green Eggs and Ham have significance in this way. The passage we're going to look at this morning in Second Thessalonians chapter 3 If you could read it the way that the Apostle Paul wrote it, has 47 words. There are 47 words that make up this paragraph beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 and going all the way to the end of chapter 5. And while green eggs and ham may be more famous than these words here, these words actually have the possibility of reframing your life as the Lord writes an even more amazing story than the story that Dr. Seuss wrote all those years ago. And that's what I want us to focus in on this morning. What does the Apostle Paul have to say here as we come to this paragraph in Scripture? Let me begin by observing that this is the last time the Apostle Paul is going to write to this congregation. If you go back to the book of Acts... This congregation actually began when the Apostle Paul came into their midst. He and two other men came with him. A man named uh, Timothy came with him. And there was a man named Silas. And they came into the city and they were bruised and battered from what they had experienced in the city of Philippi. Just the next city up uh, the road from where the, the Thessalonians were. And they, uh, you know the story of Paul and Silas coming into Philippi and they were imprisoned and uh, they had been released and they had been cruelly treated there for the gospel's sake. And the next place they come is to the city of Thessalonica. And they open up their mouth in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and they begin to tell the very same story that got them in trouble at Philippi. When they went to Philippi, they began opening up their mouth and telling the amazing news that the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was actually the anointed appointed champion that God had promised way back in Genesis 3.15 that would reverse the ancient curse, that would defeat the ancient enemy of God, and that would liberate people and bring them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. And they began announcing that news at Philippi, and it landed them in the jail of the city. And so as they leave that city, 
bruised and battered. They come into the city of Thessalonica and you would think that they would be a little more muted in what they had to say. But as soon as they arrive, they begin telling the very same story. And God began to do the very same thing. And at the end of chapter 1, Paul says to the Thessalonians, as he writes the first letter to them, he said, we don't have to tell anybody about what happened when we came into your midst. How you turned from God, turned from idols to serve the living God and to wait for the coming of His Son from heaven. And he writes this letter rejoicing in what God has done. And then he writes the second letter uh, to them a little bit later. And in the second letter, there are three prayers that Paul articulates for them. And by the time you get to chapter 3, he has been celebrating their growth in the faith. He's been, uh, he's been commending them to the grace of God so that that growth will continue. And he has been exhorting them so that every good work of faith would come to fruition by the power of God in them and through them. And when you get to the very end of the book, Paul says, now I've been praying for you. I want you to pray for me. And you have this amazing prayer that begins in verse 1 of chapter 3 and goes down to the end of verse 5. What do you pray when you pray for a servant of God who asks you to pray for him? And even more than that, what should you pray for yourself as you send off your shepherd? How do you pray gospel prayers in a time like this? I think Paul would say to you, if you're going to pray a gospel prayer during a time like this, there are four things you ought to ask God for. And so that's what I want to do in the time that we have together, is I want to look at the four things that God, or that the Apostle Paul, asks the Thessalonians to pray about when they think about him and the ministry that he's had in their midst. And so when you think about Pastor Steve and and you think about Tony and you think about their family, here are four things you should pray for when it comes to them. And there are four things that you ought to pray for yourself. Here here we are. Number one, pray for the powerful success of the Word of God. Pray for the powerful success of the Word of God. Notice how Paul puts it in verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the Word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Pray that the Word of God would run freely. That there would be no obstacles in its way. The word that is used there for the idea of running freely is the word that the Thessalonians uh, living in the region of Macedonia, the Greek region of Macedonia, would have immediately resonated with because it was part of their culture. It was the word you would use if you were running a marathon. And the idea there is not just that you're running this athletic competition And it's going to take a lot of rigor and uh, you're going to have to endure and persevere as you run. If you go back to the history of the marathon, the very first marathon was run in the context of a battle. There was a battle and the soldiers in that battle were fighting under extreme duress 
And in the context of that battle, the soldiers that were running to bring announcements back to the home city would have to run through hostile territory. And that's the idea, that the Word of God would run freely, that there would be no obstacle that would come in its path, that it would expand rapidly, that it would, exp- uh, that it would experience unhindered progress, and that it would enjoy spectacular success. This word's also used to describe the idea of water being dammed up. And all of a sudden, the dam is removed and the water just has free access everywhere it needs to go. And Paul says, I want you to pray when you think about us. Pray that the Word of God would run freely, but also pray that it would be received appropriately. Pray that it would run freely, that it would be uh, expanding rapidly and, and having unhindered progress and that it would enjoy spectacular success from the Lord. But pray also that it would be received appropriately for what it is, the Word of God. That it would be believed for what it says, the truth about God, from God. And that it would be personally embraced by the years just like it was when we first brought it to you. Pray for the powerful success of God's Word. Pray for it in your life. Pray for it in your church. Pray for it with your gospel partners. Pray for it wherever the Word of God is preached. As you remember the Haplers in the years to come, pray that the Word of God would have powerful success through their ministry. As Josh was sharing uh, their ministry and, and uh, others, other gospel partners that you have, pray for the powerful success of God's Word. So let me ask you a very, very personal question this morning. When the Word of God is preached, what are the obstacles in your life that keep it from doing the work that God intends for it to do? It's very easy for me to pray for the powerful success of God's Word when I'm praying for somebody else. When I'm praying for one of our gospel partners that that we send out through the church where I pastor, you know, I'm praying this prayer. Lord, may Your Word have good success. May it flow freely. May it reach the heart of people. And then I have to ask myself, God, what about Your Word in my own life? As I sit here and study the Word of God every week to be able to deliver that Word to your people, what are the obstacles that come into my heart? What are the obstacles in my life that keep the Word of God from getting where it needs to be and doing the work that God desires it to do? I don't know how many of you um, have thought about this, but you could, take, you could take most men and divide them into two categories, all right? There are the Home Depot guys who love Home Depot. And there's everybody else. Okay? What's a Home Depot guy? Well, a Home Depot guy gets up on Saturday morning and he has a prayer. His prayer is that he will find a project to do that day that will occasion a trip to Home Depot. And if you can't get to Home Depot, Lowe's might be a good second alternative. And if the project in the good providence of God is big enough then maybe it will even occasion the purchase of tools that he doesn't yet have or that he can't find. 
And so, you know, you get up in the morning and, and your wife's like, honey, I, uh, I noticed as you're kind of walking through the house and, and you, you, you know, this is like old timey now, but you remember the houses that used to have wallpaper on them? It's sort of making a comeback, but you know, remember the houses that had wallpaper for you younger people, you go to your grandma's house and it probably still has wallpaper on it. And, and, and so here you are and you bought one of these homes and your wife's like, honey, there's a, there, that wallpaper is curling up and you need to do something about it. You're like, Lord, if you're good, which you always are, surely there's going to be some wood rot behind that. That will occasion a project which will take me to Home Depot and the Portal of Paradise. And I'll be able to go in there and it'll be awesome. Okay, that's a Home Depot guy. Then there's me. I think I represent the rest of the guys. You know what we do? We look at that wallpaper and we lick it and we stick it back down. <laughs> Project done. When the Word of God comes into your life and there's something that it points to, what's your response? When God says, I need to take out the tool of my Word and I need to start opening up the wall of your life and we need to get back in there and we need to fix by the Spirit of God and the Word of God what is disconnected back there or what's not, what's not useful to the work of the kingdom in your life. This is exactly what Paul's saying. Pray that the Word of God would have powerful success and the place for that prayer to start is not across an ocean and it's really not even across the street. It's right in your own heart. Lord, pray that the Word of God, that Your Word would have good success in my life. Lord, as I read it today, would, would Your Spirit take that, work, that Word and begin to do the work that You need to do in my life to grow me in grace, to teach me more about who You are and what You're like, to strengthen something in my life, to, to add something in my life, to remove something that needs to be removed from my life. Pray for the powerful success of God's Word in your life. And Paul says, now, there's a second thing that I'm going to ask you to pray for. Pray for the Word of God to have powerful success, but pray for protection as that Word begins to do its work. Pray for protection from God as the Word begins to do its work. Look at verse 2. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Anytime the Word of God begins to do its work in your life, there is an enemy who will come against that work. I mean, think about what happened in the first century. Here are people... And, and from a human standpoint, they live in a city, they have their gods, they have their religion, they have their way of doing life, and life seems to be going along pretty well for them. They live under the auspices of one of the greatest empires the world had ever seen up to that point, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had brought roads it had cleaned up the pirates from the ocean around them. They were able now to, to, to do trade on the seas. There was a standardized monetary system. The communication uh, that, that went from city to city. I mean, law and order 
life was pretty good at this point in the Roman Empire. That's why, if you remember back to your history books, that period of time was called the Pax Romana. Romana, Roman, Pax, peace, the Roman peace. Life was pretty good. And into your city came these guys, Paul, Timothy, Silas. And they started talking about a whole nother kingdom. They talked about another Lord. In your kingdom, you had a Lord and his name was Caesar. He was your soter. In fact, that's how uh, the, the Romans referred to the emperor as their Lord and their soter, which is Latin for savior. You already had a Lord and you had a savior and he was a pretty good one. And all of a sudden, into your city comes another Lord and another Savior, and His name is Jesus. And and all of a sudden, God begins to do a work in your heart. As that Word comes into your life, God opens your eyes, and you see something you could never see before, something you never imagined would happen. You begin to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, and you embrace that Lord and that Savior. And all of a sudden... What comes into your life is ruthless and relentless persecution. Ruthless and relentless persecution. Everything that goes wrong in your city is now blamed on you because the gods are angry. I mean, that's really what it was like in the first century. I mean, think about how we do evangelism today. We tell people, look, if you just accept Jesus Christ, your life will be what? better. If you sprinkle enough Jesus in, everything gets better. Your job gets better. Your family gets better. Your marriage gets better. If you just sprinkle enough Jesus in, then then it gets better. But in the first century, if you added Jesus into your life, it got a lot what? It got a lot harder. By the time you get to Hebrews chapter 10, Paul is saying, or the writer of Hebrews is saying to those who are reading that letter, you have given up your homes. You have been expelled from your cities. You have been banished as citizens of your country. You have suffered ridicule and revilement. And some of you have even suffered physically. And some of you are going to suffer unto death. You are sending your pastor to train people to do that. Where embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior isn't going to result in more of this world's goods. It's not going to result in a more placid and favorable life in the cities where they live. It is going to result in the kind of persecution that you read about in the first century. So here's my question. As you pray for the Word of God to flow out of your pastor and his family and their ministry in this new place, are you prepared for that here? Are you prepared to pay the price for what will happen when the Word of God really starts taking action in your life? 
Paul says, pray for the word of God that it would have powerful success. And the minute the word of God starts working in your life and you begin to realize I am living for the wrong values, I am living for the wrong priorities, I've got to reorient the way I do my life. All of a sudden, there are going to be people in your life who are going to go, whoa, 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 hang on, wait a second. What are you doing? I mean, I'm all excited that you want to go to church. I'm all excited about your new passion for Jesus. I'm all excited about that. But hang on a second. I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for the kind of giving that you're talking about giving our money away. I didn't sign up for that. Or, you know, if you keep doing this, it's going to cost you that promotion at work. I didn't sign up for that. Or if you do this, it's, it's going to close doors for you in your community. I didn't sign up for that. And all of a sudden, there is going to be resistance, and that resistance may come very close to home. Because we all have a comfort zone, don't we? The resistance in Jesus' day didn't come from the Greeks, and it didn't come from the Romans. It came from where? His own people. Who saw Jesus and began to realize if people start listening and actually embracing what he says, it's going to get real uncomfortable for us with our traditions and our ways. And the minute you touch somebody's comfort zone or the minute you touch somebody's values, then all of a sudden comes what? Resistance. This has always been true when it comes to the spread of the gospel, has it not? And that's why Paul says, if you're going to pray a gospel prayer, part one, pray for the powerful success of God's word. Part two is pray for protection as that word begins its work. And then there's a third thing that Paul says, pray for persistent obedience to the will of God as God's word begins to do its work, because as God's word begins to do its work, you begin to discover what God wants you to do. And so he says this, and we have confidence, verse four, and we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. We have confidence in the Lord. Paul, Paul is not saying, look, we are confident about you. We know that you're going to hang in there. We know that you've got it in you if you'll just hang tight. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying our confidence about you is in the Lord. We have confidence that the Lord is going to do something in you that he's already been doing. So what is it that God's already been doing in the people of Thessalonica? And here's the answer. He's been helping them to obey the word that came into their midst with such power. You know what happens to us? I don't know about you, what happens to me? I tend to look at my life and I tend to focus on the one area of disobedience that I struggle with. And there are times when we need to do that. right? We do need to look at those areas in our life and we do need to actually come before the Lord and, and say, God, I don't know how to fix this, but, but I'm so thankful that you do. And we need to look at that. But Paul isn't doing that here. He's actually looking at the amazing obedience 
that these people have rendered in the face of the kind of persecution they've endured, and he's marveling at it, and he is acknowledging that God is the one who produced this obedience. Think about your life for a minute. Think about the obedience that you have rendered to the Lord day after day after day for this entire week. The last seven days, think about the times that you came up against something and you rendered an obedience to the Lord. You were tired, but you got up and you got in the word and you rendered that obedience to the Lord. I mean, just think about all the little areas of life. There may have been a time this week where you were confronted with something and and you were tempted to shade the truth and you didn't. There might have been a temptation to do something that nobody would have ever seen and you didn't. We tend to think about all the times we did. And Paul here is saying, before you get there, think about all the times that God enabled you to have obedience to Him. Paul said, I am confident that the Word of God that birthed you into life is powerful enough to bring it about an obedience of faith in you. Think about the way that God is helping you to obey. I mean, I'm just... You know, let me let me bring this to gospel praying for a moment here. Uh, some of you work very, very hard. All of you work very, very hard for your money. I'm not trying to imply that some of you don't. But all of you work very, very hard for your money, however much you get, right? Have you ever thought how senseless it is to people when they think about what you are doing with your money that you work so hard for? Because every week you take a good chunk of that money that could be used to do a ton of other things that would be incredibly uh, fun and, and profitable for you or your family. And what do you do with that chunk of money? You give it away. And you're not doing it because it's going to earn you anything with God. You're not doing it because it makes you more righteous with Him. You're, you're just, this is, this is something that you do all the time. I mean, can you imagine? Here you are and you're praying and, and you want to do more gospel giving and you've been praying about that. I mean, we just had this in our church. We got really burdened for what's going on at Ukraine. And, and so we started praying as a church that, that God would give us money we don't have to give to this project. And God's been doing that. Can you imagine? Here you are, and all of a sudden, uh, your boss comes along, and everybody in the company is getting a $5,000 bonus. And you're like so excited about that. And you're down at the break room and everybody's talking about what they're going to do with their $5,000 bonus. Man, I'm going to go on this trip that my wife and I have always wanted. I'm buying a boat. And you're like, I'm giving my money to the church. And everybody's like, huh? Okay, you know, whoa, 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 wait a second. You just got $5,000, dude. Yeah, it's awesome. I've been praying for this. And, 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 and God just dumped it in my lap. And so I can't wait because I'm going to write a $5,000 check to our church. And those people are going to go, okay, let me get this straight. You do, I, I know you're a church dude. You do church all the time. You go like way more church than Jesus wanted anybody to go to church. You're like the church dude in our company. And, you know, and we know that you give like we know you give. Yeah, but this is like over the top. How do you explain that? 
I mean, how do you explain that? And the answer is, the God that Paul is talking about here took his word and energized you so that you could render that obedience to him. That's what Paul is talking about. Pray for the powerful success of God's word. Pray for protection in the word, but pray for ongoing obedience that doesn't come from your own strength, but that is energized by the Lord. And so that brings me to the final thing, and that is this. What is going to fuel this kind of living? What's going to fuel this kind of living? And Paul's answer to that is in the final thing that he talks about, pray for progressive growth in the understanding of who God is. There's only one thing big enough to fuel this kind of living, and it is you coming to understand fully how God feels about you. And that's what Paul talks about here. May the Lord direct your hearts. The idea there is that the Lord would would remove any obstacle in the way, that He would just sort of bulldoze a path. May the Lord direct your hearts, and here's what... He wants God to direct your heart to. This is, this is where Paul says you pray that God would direct your heart to the love of God. And I don't think he's talking about our love for God as much as he's talking about God's love for us. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, you and I have categories for a lot of different kinds of love. Like, for example, I know what it's like to love a spouse, and I know what it's like to be loved by a spouse because I'm in that relationship. And I have a category for that. When you say married love, I have a category for that. I know what it's like to be loved by a friend and to love a friend back because I have a category for that. I've experienced that. I know what it's like to experience the love of a father because I have a father and I had a great dad. And, and I, was, I was so fortunate in that. The Lord gave me a dad who loved all of us growing up in his home. So I, I had that experience. When you say, do you understand what it's like to be loved by a dad? Yeah, I have a category for that. I didn't have a category for loving a son or a daughter until I had one. The very first time I held my son and then later held my daughter, I immediately understood a brand new category of love. I knew what it was like to love a son or a daughter. So I have these categories for love. I don't have a category for the kind of love that God experiences for me. I just don't. I don't have a category to understand the white, hot, passionate love that God has for the other members of the Trinity. God the Father Loving passionately God the Son. God the Son loving passionately God the Father. And God the Spirit witnessing this and and rejoicing in it and celebrating and experiencing and giving it. Within the Trinity is this amazing ocean of white hot passion love that, that exists between the members of the Trinity. And one day, God wanted to share that experience with you. And the only way you're ever going to know that kind of love is when the Holy Spirit of God sheds it abroad. Just like Paul said to the Romans, when the Holy Spirit of God sheds it abroad in your life. 
There is nothing, nothing that you can do, Paul said, that will separate you from the love of God. No sin that you commit. No, no thing that you blow. No, nothing. There's nothing that can separate you from that love if you belong to God. And the, and the evidence of the passion of that love and the extent of that love is what God did to bring you into that love. He sent His Son, and that's what He talks about there, that He would direct your heart to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. The idea there is to the endurance that Christ went through so that you could have that love. I mean, if you could sort of get your head into the Trinity's mindset, there was a time when this was being discussed and and God the Son said to God the Father, I will go and make a way for the love that we have for each other to have a venue so that they can experience and receive this same love for us. I will go. And one day... Jesus set aside all of the prerogatives of deity and he was born to a virgin. And for 33 years he lived on a planet that didn't even recognize who he was. And then on the end of that journey, he went to a Roman cross and he endured the most horrific death imaginable. And while he was being nailed to a tree that he created... He said to the Father about the soldiers that were nailing into that cross, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. And He did that so that you could experience the unadulterated love of God that you never have to earn, that never ends. You have never been loved this way. We have little human tastes of it. No matter what my kids do, I don't care how dirty they are or how much they mess up, there's a sense in which I, my love for them will never stop. And God's love for you will never stop. And that's why Paul says, pray a gospel prayer. Because the love that you've experienced, there are more people that need to experience that. And that's why God said to this church, who has been led for 12 years by a pastor who has taught you about that love. That you don't have to earn it. That you can't destroy it. He's taken the Word of God and He's exploded out of your thinking the performance aspect of you've got to perform to be accepted. And all of a sudden, you are enjoying the unadulterated pleasure that God has in you as a Christian. And you have been growing in grace as the Word of God has been preached to you. And God says to you as a church, okay, now you're ready. I want to take your pastor. I've got another shepherd for you. He's coming. I'm going to take your pastor. And I want to send him because other people need to know about that love. They need to experience that. So you pray for him as you pray for yourself. That the word of God would have free course. And that it would lead people into this amazing love that God has for us.